Hello and welcome to Discussions in Tunbridge Wells, uh, the psychology and mental health podcast produced by the Salomon Centre for Applied Psychology in Kent. My name is John McGowan and I'm a psychologist working in the centre. In today's show, we're going to look at when professionals working in mental health have their own experiences of the stress and of mental health problems and also of using mental health services. To help with this discussion, I'm joined by our usual panel of Anne Cook. Hello. Angela Gilchrist. Hi, John. And Rachel Terry. Hello. Now, we're also very pleased to have a whacking three special guests. I'm not quite sure how having three guests is going to work. Um, however, it, is, it gives us great pleasure to introduce uh, an old friend of the centre, uh, clinical psychologist uh, Rufus May. Hi. Laura Lee, who is our own coordinator of service user and care involvement. Uh, I'm aware that we've been trying to debut for a while, Laura, debut for a while, Laura, so this is quite exciting that we, you're actually here. Thank you. Yes, hello. And Hannah Warren, who is a third-year trainee, probably soon to stop being yeah, a trainee, actually, yeah. but you also have the distinction of being the first trainee ever to appear on this programme. So, hello. Hi. Okay, now before we launch into the discussion, I just first of all want to say, where are we at? Well, we're in our new building in Meadow Road, right in the middle of Tunbridge Wells. As you can probably hear from the intermittent drills, they're uh, still building it. So it's that new, but it's very downtown and very funky. Excellent. Okay, um, I'll, I'll pass over to you, um, Anne, again in a second as well, because I think this area, this issue of mental health problems or mental health issues or issues of distress among people who work in who work in services has often been quite a thorny one really over quite a long period of time so I wonder if you could just sort of tee us up with a little bit of context on a little bit of context on this to launch us in. Sure well we know that there are very high rates of mental health problems amongst mental health professionals after all we have have some have to have some reason to get interested in this stuff in the first place. Um, in fact, some research at University College London found that among clinical psychologists, two thirds of clinical psychologists have had some significant experience of mental ill health in the past. So that's quite high numbers, and I imagine it's similar for other professions. But interestingly, most of those had never talked about it at work. So there is you know, a huge amount of experience out there that people aren't talking about in their work. They're not drawing on as a source of knowledge, at least not explicitly. Um, and I think it's increasingly re- being realised that that's a bit of a myth, that you know we're not... Uh, I think it was you, Rufus, who coined the phrase sanity consultants. You know, There's this myth that we're Professionals are supposed to be sanity consultants and solve all your problems before breakfast, if you had any in the first place. But of course, we know it's not like that at all. And it's not only that, you know, we're like everybody else and have problems, in fact, possibly more than some others. Um, But also our own experiences can be a really useful source of knowledge alongside what we are training and our research. And, And to not talk about it risks perpetuating a kind of them and us culture. So, yeah. It's in. It's been talked about a lot for good reason, I think, recently. So why don't we talk about it and why should we? Well, I guess as a, somebody who lives with mental health issues, uh, I would certainly put my hand up to wanting to go to somebody who could sort out my mental health issues. And I think I had the fantasy when I began using services that that would be somebody who didn't have mental health issues. Um, there's something about looking up to your clinician, your doctor, your psychologist, and thinking that they, they've got it sorted out. Uh, and I think that runs very strongly through both service users and probably through professionals too. Just this morning on um, BBC Radio 5 Live, there was a discussion about this issue as well. And there was a mental health nurse interviewed and she said that she thinks there's very much a culture 
uh, that staff feel that they should be soldiers that keep on marching on. So however distressed they may feel inside, they feel that they should keep going and support others and not sort of take a break, take care of themselves, share their own experiences. And they're saying that's very much... We might, I'm quite surprised, in a way, to hear that that still is very much the culture here and now in services. So do you think that maybe public services for certain to a certain extent adopted a kind of military culture? I mean, that kind of keep on soldiering on thing. I don't really like comparisons with military culture in NHS services, but, but definitely a sort of invincible culture. The stiff upper lip yeah. lives on. Rufus, I wonder if we could bring you in here, because it seems to me that you've been a lot more out about all of these issues than maybe almost anyone else I've come across over, certainly over a longer period of time. I mean, you seem to have basically been around and, and talking and writing about these this, these kind of issues, certainly for as long as I've been involved in clinical psychology. So I can't really remember a time when you were kind of in about them. In my training, I kept quiet. So uh, it wasn't until I felt like I got to a power position where I could then risk talking about having sort of the taboo experience of being given a heavy diagnosis. So in my case, 18, schizophrenia. And it wasn't until I felt like I'd proved that I was competent and sort of passed as sane enough to be a psychologist that I felt able to come out. But it was a painful process keeping quiet. That compartmentalisation that I felt was encouraged by training, I didn't feel was healthy for me or my fellow trainees. So I'm very interested in how we can be more present with ourselves at work um, that we all experience distress and confusion um, and how can we reflect on that in a helpful way not in a way that undermines confidence is inclusive and inspiring perhaps I mean, I think that um, the research that Anne was referring to at UCL very much supports what Rufus was saying there, that a lot of people are, are concerned about sort of disclosing, if that's the term you want to use, or sharing their own experiences of distress for a fear that they will be judged as not being as competent or not being as sort of strong or able professionally, which, you know, is a real worry and something that we need to be thinking about. So is the issue, in some sense, just attracting a a, a mental health diagnosis has been de facto an attack on someone's competence. I mean, it's still there. We see it all the time. I mean, the big example recently is, I suppose, Donald Trump. People using clinical labels to attack him because they're ultimately saying because he has X label, he is not competent, mm-hmm. which seems to me to be an incredibly specious argument, really. Um, even as somebody that I disagree with as much as, as Donald Trump, it still really troubles me deeply, the degree to which that's automatically been put out there and equated with, you can't do this. You may or may not be able to do it, but I'm not sure that that's really the, the issue. So is that sense of equate is the taboo partly around the sense of equating having a diagnosis or having had issues or distressing issues with a lack of competence? I think that, yeah, that can definitely happen. But um, I think there's definitely moves in the opposite direction as well. So coming to the end of training now and applying for jobs, you know, I've actually seen on job adverts that one of the kind of desirable criteria would be for the person, for the candidate to have experiences of mental health difficulties themselves, which I found um, really, really positive, actually. And in my interviews, I was, you know, actually my application forms as well as my interviews, I was quite open about my own kind of personal history of uh, mental health difficulties and use of services and I found that it was accepted and actually really valued and I'm really happy to be actually going into a job where 
they know that about me and where obviously that's valued by the team that I'm going into. So Has that changed, Rufus, then, in your time? I think the culture is opening up slowly and that's exciting. I got interviewed by a trainee from another course who's been open about hearing voices throughout his training. Um, so that, that's encouraging to hear. Yeah. But having said that as well, also speaking as a trainee coming to the end of my training now, um, I'm, I've only sort of been kind of out and proud about my mental health difficulties or, or history of it sort of in the last maybe six months or year or so certainly for me to do that really felt like I was lifting the lid on a big taboo that exists um, I was the first trainee that sort of in my year group certainly and possibly in, in the other year groups kind of going through the course at the same time as me who very openly kind of spoke about it and I even ran workshops on this because it still felt so uh, silenced in people and so taboo. It, it, you know, it, it's surely not surprising, though, that trainees and qualified psychologists as well who's, who've had mental health problems are so silenced, you know, because there, there's often in universities and among mental health professionals a very liberal sort of view of what having had mental health difficulties might mean. But the reality is that people who have had those experiences are not well supported by institutions. I'm just wondering, though, why is it a good thing for the people who use services? Because in my gut, I think, yeah, this is a good thing. Um, but is the evidence there to say that this is a good thing for people who use services? I don't know. I mean, Rufus, you must have had clients. What difference would you identify it makes to for the people who come to see you? Yeah, I work in a hospital environment. I guess I always told my story because I wanted to challenge... I saw it as a political act, really. I wanted to challenge medical concepts, really. So I wanted to suggest that these diagnoses are limited... Really. So partly that's one of the reasons I told my story. So it's out there. So people often know and hear about it mm. rather than I tell them. And people seem to be comfortable with me about that and ask me questions. And it seems to give people hope. I don't know about the people. It, it puts them off me. They don't mm. tell me. But I, it seems to do more good than harm. Yeah. But that's... I don't know that there's kind of an evidence that this has really been looked at. No. You know, and I don't I don't really believe in those kind of evidence bases anyway. Okay. <laughs> I would think they're politically motivated. Well, I, I, I'm just really, really interested in this because yeah. I, for me, one of the real indictments of the mental health services is, and clinical psychologists fall into that, is that there this sense of equality and the superiority that is either in, uh, put upon the mental health professional or the mental health professional brings to that relationship is really damaging. And for me, there's something I was just, you know, coming to this meeting, I was thinking, oh, um, so who, who do I think is a good example of not really saying much about their own experiences, but clearly having them? And it's a very skilled therapist that I've had. And I at no time have ever felt less valued, less important than he is. And that's actually quite a rare experience in my experience of using services for a long time. And it's a very positive space to be in. And I value him because of his skills. So I don't value him because he's got qualifications or because he's coming into the room saying, I know how to manage you or help you. 
I value him because he gives me things that help me to be well. So for me, there's something about the skills that professionals have and speak for themselves, but I want to be with professionals who don't undermine my sense of humanity. And I'm wondering if that's got something to do with this you know, speaking out. So people who come to see you, you Rufus, are probably thinking, well, you know, this guy's had his own experiences. That's all right then. Maybe, maybe that's the sort of thinking that people are having. I don't know. I, I think there's lots we don't know about this. I mean, I'm really impressed as well as AA with like meditation communities where mm. meditation practitioners will reflect on their own experience to share how they use meditation and it just seems really natural way to talk about behavior and human experience if we include ourselves and i don't think still in training there's enough of that kind of reflection i know that there is an emphasis on being reflective practitioners but i i still find because we're trying to be scientists and that gives us status as a profession trainees are encouraged to talk in terms of theory and practice and to talk a bit still as a detached expert, I, I think well, that's still I, I, happening. I agree with you, yeah. actually. I, I do agree with you. But I do think when it comes to lived experience, and, and by lived experience I mean everything that we encounter as humans, whether it's bereavement or the loss of a child or we might be getting divorced or have a partner who's very ill, even those th- those things as, as well as mental health issues. It, it, it goes without saying that those things are potentially useful to our profession. If we don't accept that life experience is potentially useful to our profession, then what are we saying? That we're just a blank slate? That we can, you know, it's not possible for any one of us to come in with nothing because we're all humans who have experiences. So as a profession, we need to think now, how do we use this as a resource in our work? And if we're serious about that, it has to cross the whole continuum, the whole of life experience from the ordinary events I've just mentioned to the extraordinary events like severe so-called mental illness and psychosis. But our profession doesn't know how to do that. It doesn't have the equipment or resources in place to facilitate that. One or two brave individuals, and I really admire you for what you've done, have managed to be pioneers. But you are sort of like the man on the moon, if you like. There are not, you know, there's only one of you at the moment. And there's a few others who, you know, there's a few others who are out to varying shades of degree. But we are not at the point in our profession where it's safe for people to be out about their mental health problems. And I really think that's the basis from where we have to work. Well, it seems to me that there are several different things going on. And Laura has brought in something slightly um, in the next part of this, which is it does feel to me that people are saying, yes, that there is an importance in being able to get in touch with and acknowledge things that... one's own vulnerabilities and I mean while not everyone necessarily wants to be right out there there people are saying that they feel the work benefits from that now I take Rufus's point about evidence in the sense that you know lots of psychotherapies and therapeutic endeavors are a bit in your gut really in terms of what you think works and what you think is going to develop and strengthen a relationship and and improve the outcome but while it feels that there's a fair amount of consensus that 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 is important though i guess some other people may dispute that i mean there's been a rather 
you know, ambivalent history about this across all mental prof- mental health professions. But what it seems to me what you were saying, Laura, was you were moving into something else about being a little bit more publicly acknowledging of one's own vulnerabilities, perhaps directly in a therapeutic mm. relationship with somebody, which I feel kind of a little bit less, I don't want to say uncomfortable with. That's not really what I mean, but in some sense I worry about it getting in the way of the work. Isn't that the point, though, that... If, if it does get in the way of the work, that's when it's not right. But the question, obviously, is how to judge whether it's getting in the way of the work. There's been a really interesting thread on Twitter. I don't know if you saw it in the last couple of days. Jay Watts asked the question, ha, uh, can you tell me about times when your therapist has or hasn't been present mm-hmm. in a therapy I session? See that. And it's been really interesting, and it strikes me that, in a way, that's a useful yardstick, that actually talking about your own things that have happened to you in general self-disclosure can help you be more present you know for example when you can empathize with something and perhaps you can say that you've had a similar experience in order that the person knows like a bit like you were saying you know somebody might think coming to Rufus oh he's had his own experience that's all right then yeah. I like that phrase but on the other hand it could go the other way to to make you you know if you're if it goes too far then you're talking about yourself essentially and you're using the the session for your own ends and you're not present for the client it's not for them anymore i suppose it's something about having i suppose come through quite a psychoanalytic sort of style of training where uh, within that there was a kind of premium placed on you know having had the experience of being in the other chair therapeutically in the sense that there was this enormous emphasis on personal therapy and kind of well, I went to the Tavistock and everyone seemed to be in kind of five times a weekly personal therapy. I was on a mere lightweight three times a week personal therapy, which is just, you know, no, clearly not. It's whims. <laughs> totally for whims. But the flip side of it is while, while you can... You've got my respect. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was also broke as well. Like, it's a very, elite, a very elitist model of training, that. But I suppose the other thing that was really emphasised within that approach was a certain measure of, well, not mystery, but a sense of, being able to be at least a little bit blank. Obviously, there are all sorts of things about you that people can see. But to a certain extent, the idea that people not knowing certain things about you allowed you to be what they you, they needed you to be for in the, in the interplay of the session to have thoughts and ideas about you that might help or take you into something. And I'm sort of, I suppose I feel very wary about kind of closing that off as it's often felt quite valuable therapeutically. I think for me, so talking now kind of as a person um, going through therapy over a number of years, I'd say probably my relationship with my therapist is somewhere kind of in the middle between those two points where I feel that she has had enough experience of distress herself to be able to really understand a lot of the things that I bring. So I think with my experiences of um, psychological distress, it's the stuff that's really, really hard to put into words that is the most distressing. It's when it's that sort of internal, uh, the internal experiences, the, the, the feelings that are really difficult to make sense of. It's that, that when I can feel kind of in tune with her, and I can feel that she can understand what I'm saying without me necessarily having to find the right words for it. And um, I think that's when it's the most helpful. So it's not that I know, for example, she has ever, for example, been given a diagnosis or, um, I don't know, been in contact with services herself. But I know that she's lived her own distress enough for her to be able to support me in my journey of making sense of my own distress. If that makes sense. Mm. 
But you are saying also then, Hannah, that it, it's it's implicit rather than explicit yes. that yes. you have a sense of her having made her own journey, yes. but you still don't know about I don't know her. the details, absolutely. And it seems to me that there is something important about that that might be crucial to a therapy. Yeah. But also, I, I think that whatever experiences we have had, it might be useful to use them, and there might be times when it's not. Mm. I mean, if, for example, somebody who's a rape survivor it has somebody in therapy who has just had an experience of rape, it might not be a good idea to tell them that you too are a rape survivor. It might set up a lot of anxiety in the client about whether they would be able to survive or not or do as well as this person has Absolutely. and so on. And so it, it isn't a given, is it, that just expressing something is going to be helpful? Yeah. I was just yeah. going to say that's kind of the other, other face to the coin, isn't it, when empathy then can slip into over-identification mm-hmm. both on the part of, of the patient as well as the therapist. Kind of stating the obvious, aren't we? <laughs> I mean, every... Every relationship is different, whether it's a therapeutic one or not. So I would feel comfortable telling Anne something, but I might not feel comfortable telling Laura because I've just met her, you know. And and each relationship will have... So we construct what's safe and we, we, we try... It's trial and error how much we reveal about ourselves to build a relationship. I might I might say to somebody who's really stuck with their emotions, do you want to know how I'm feeling hearing your story? They might say yes and they might say no, you know. And sometimes people have found that really helpful to hear how I'm feeling having heard their story. And it can I'm dealing with people with complex states of distress who are used to people gazing at them and not engaging with them as equals. So and I experienced that in the system as well, where people took a very Rogerian strict approach of being blank slates. I don't know if that is the original Rogerian approach, but their approach was they'd ask us how we were feeling, but if you ask them how you're feeling, they'd say, I'm wondering why you're interested in how I'm feeling. <laughs> and, uh, and a lot of us found it quite alienating mm-hmm. to, that we weren't being trusted. There wasn't that solidarity, mm-hmm. you know, that we weren't being trusted to share any of their experience. So for me, I'm quite passionate about how we just need to be flexible with, with this and, and uh, share, share stories of, of what's been helpful. Sometimes I know I've probably got the boundaries wrong and I'll, I'll learn from that there are risks both ways I guess I'm saying and this is a great ripple of laughter around when the notion of you know why you know kind of why why do you want to know how I'm feeling and this is a question that when we've got a new intake of trainees starting and this is a question that people ask all the time in those early sessions when they're quite anxious well what if somebody asks me about about myself is it okay to say X and they will have discussion and people have come from different backgrounds and different trainings and they'll all say different things about this is okay that's okay that's not okay some will be able to be a little bit more thoughtful than others the answer I always give is that actually if you just answer that question it always feels to me that you're losing something instantly because you're not trying just even a little bit to reach behind the question and try and connect with the anxiety that's prompting it and I think if that's done thoughtfully that can feel to me like a very helpful thing to do and it feels like if I just answer the question have you got kids have you ever been in distress have you ever you know, whatever the question is but then I'm just kind of 
nobody else feel that they're just kind of giving it all away if they just answer the I think the it depends because what Rufus says is also important that sometimes one just has to be human and make a human mm. connection and it can be very alienating if you interpret every single question that comes your way. I think it's very alienating and uh, uh, it's very interesting the research we've done here with um, uh, people who are service user and carer colleagues on the programme. The thing that they wanted to communicate to the trainees is we are human beings and that's that's a bit of an indictment, really, that people who use services are saying, that's the first thing I want people to know. I am a human being. And I really love that word you use, Rufus, sense of solidarity. That feels like a really good bedrock to be building change on. You know, somebody is solid with me. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't really matter how, but, you know, building that sense of security in which I can go forward and make changes is, is really positive. Um, and I I remember asking questions of, of mental health professionals just to the sense of, you prove you're a human being, mm. please. Mm. You know, it feels like I've not even been greeted properly as I come in the door. Mm. So, you know, you as clinicians have all sorts of theories and rules and reasons why you do things. But actually as a service user, especially entering the services for the first time, you really don't understand any of this and maybe you never will but it is a tricky balance in that yes it's important to show some humanity and solidarity but if you reveal too much that could spoil the entire process of therapy if they see you as too human you know it, it's a so very you know, tricky that there's balance anything I think. such as being too human but i do agree they, that they, it is possible a, to feel as though it's suddenly that you're not consulting with a professional anymore no no i've never had that it's more uh the therapist has become the focus and just in a few sentences you can as a service user in a in a therapy or meet me in therapy i can think whoa it feels like they're it's now them not me and that i'm not sure about that at all Mm. because the purpose that's why people have been paid to be there to enable someone not to be able to say what their own situation is. And that even just saying you have children might put it might put you in that situation. So it's very delicate to balance this. I suppose also I'm not trying to say that that is necessarily a model that I'm foisting on other people mm. to to work as a therapist in my way. But you, you wrote an article about this on our blog, actually, Laura, uh, I did. Th- three or four years ago. I seem to remember it was tweeted by Alistair Campbell. Which well, was it was. Yes, yes. it was. I, I did, I did, I could see where you're coming from completely, but I did have some reservations a, a, about it, partly because I think of what Angela has just said. It's something about killing something off or spoiling something. And certainly having been in a long-term therapeutic, um, as you know, participant in a long-term therapeutic contact myself. I remember finding it initially quite frustrating that my therapist was a bit blank, quite analytic therapist was quite blank. But I think as, as time went on, I kind of, I found it a bit of a relief actually, because it, it, it gave much, it was, there was a much freer play to what I could bring and what I could think that she was and wasn't changed according to where my own anxieties were and to a certain extent she could have as I think as Angela's kind of implying just yeah. shut something yeah shut something down by just being too direct about answering those questions and I'm not saying I didn't find it frustrating at the beginning I, I'm not saying I didn't find it frustrating but 
actually it was still valuable you know i'm thinking now about people who are using the nhs mental health services will we start with iat it's a phone conversation improving access yeah. to psychological oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah. uh yeah in from a primary care mental health service you'll get a certain number of sessions you know those who are privileged enough to get the time to go into full therapy whatever full therapy is are few and far between. Mm. So, you know, we are talking here about, we're not talking here about most people. So mm. what actually helps, what, you know, what should be driving this question is, what will help most people? Mm. And I think, I'm not very clear because I'm not sure that the research, the research hasn't been done, Rufus, I don't know, maybe. And I think there is some value in, in looking at questions. Um like that, but I also know that in our society it is still a problem saying you have a mental health mm-hmm. difficulty. Mm-hmm. Your family mm-hmm. might be prejudiced against you and have all sorts of ideas because you've got this mental health problem. Your friends will probably be a bit confused. Your employer could be downright hostile, or even when they're trying to do their best and it's in the procedure that you've got to be referred to occupational health. It feels like quite a hostile situation. Well, maybe, the, maybe some of the prejudice is internal. Uh, at, well, yes. But in, in order to overcome these prejudices, yes, I do think that mental health professionals need to be talking openly about their own difficulties because they are actually, en masse, mental health professionals are a powerful voice to advocate for the ordinariness of the unusual and our ordinary distress. So I think for that reason, I'd say it's a, it's it's good because I think it works on a society level as well as on what's most important for most people who are entering NHS services. Because um, we've been talking a lot about whether we should or shouldn't disclose to the people that we're working with, clients. But I agree very much with Rufus that different relationships you know, have different challenges and dilemmas and we haven't spoken much about whether as a mental health professional you might disclose to your colleagues or you might have discussions as a, as a, as a staff team about your own mental health and well-being or distress yeah. or have, a, have conversations with your family and friends as a mental health professional about your own distress. So, so these are dilemmas that mental health professionals are facing all the time and I think one of the things that they're thinking about is, is the stigma that still exists and it is very difficult. But um, I think that we're, we're all of agreement um, that actually having more conversations of that nature would probably be a helpful thing, not necessarily in therapy with clients, but if we could free ourselves up to have some of these conversations more, that would be a helpful thing, I think. Absolutely, I think it's important for the well-being of the mental health professional. We've been thinking a lot about the impact that it would have on um, service users or people in therapy if a therapist does disclose their own um, experiences of, of mental distress. But in addition to that, I think it's really important to actually think about you know, the, the trainees and psychologists and mental health nurses and all the people who are practicing and who feel this need, as you were saying at the beginning, to kind of soldier on and to kind of shut off this part of themselves that's crying out to be supported and, and you know, to be looked after. And I think it's, yeah, it's really important to have these conversations as well so that we kind of protect the well-being of the workforce in addition to thinking about the impact on service users. Yeah, actually, I, you reminded me, I wrote a piece with Jay Watts in The Guardian about exactly that, about the mental health of the, the workforce. And, you know, the, there had been a survey that found that a lot of psychological therapists would consider themselves depressed. And I think, 
yeah, sometimes yeah, another thing that we can very usefully look at is the culture of services. You know, the kind of throughput culture, the one that leads to the soldier need to soldier on, like you're talking about, and the the targets culture, the relentlessness, and also the stigma. I mean, it's I think it is important to bear in mind the context that it's not that long ago that we had the Clothier report, which was the report into a, a nurse who murdered some children. But anyway, basically that. Beverly Allett, her name was, and the report concluded that any professional, any nurse who'd made, I think the the um, phrase was excessive use of counselling, the question, their ability to practice should be questioned. So, and that's not that long ago. Well, the, the, the Donald Trump competence issue is like, you know, yesterday and last week. I mean, it's, it's effectively the same issue I think mm-hmm. uh, I mean I, I just in the context of what you were saying I mean the thing I think that really worries me not just resourcing and things it's ultimately the culture of expectation on the NHS and mental health services you know that suicide rates or mission rates that it's all about you know the resourcing and what mental health services put in or don't put in rather than all sorts of other parameters socially inequality or unemployment or you know whatever it may be so much gets focused on mental health and i think that's really that is really it's such a pressure into that absolutely into that if i'd only done my pressure. job properly then i'd never have had anybody kill themselves for example is it and that, that fear is something that goes obviously you know perhaps being a practitioner in a different way and more socially active uh, you know, more socially active way. I know that we're going to have to finish off soon, but it does seem to me that there is a little bit of diversity around this, around the table, and I'm wondering if perhaps there doesn't necessarily have to be one way to do this. I mean, I'm a little bit troubled that everyone has to, well, not necessarily come out, but, you know, I personally have always felt incredibly reticent about bringing any experiences that I've had, uh, either myself or my family, into a kind of clinical context, just simply because I, I, I don't want people making particular assumptions. Now, maybe they're going to be making all sorts of assumptions anyway, I don't know. But do you think it's okay that we have different ways of going about this? I mean, I admire Rufus tremendously, but I'm aware that I would probably never really be comfortable to be a practitioner in quite the way that you are. You sort of define it slightly differently. I guess I'm working, I want to, I'm not really working as a one-to-one therapist Mm. long-term with people. I'm trying to develop what I understand is healing community. I'm working in hospitals, but also training people uh, from all sorts of different backgrounds. And I'd, I'd just like people to become more comfortable talking about their own experiences. And I need to model that, I feel. If I if I keep myself out of it, I'm kind of not practicing what I'm preaching, that we, we learn to talk about our feelings. Not So I'm, I'm not so passionate about mental health professionals talking about their mental health problems, but mental health professionals and other helpers being comfortable talking about their own experiences mm-hmm. and their own emotions, their own needs, and, and as a way to that we can all perhaps move away from when we don't talk about those things, we often get into conflict, you know, if we keep those things out. So it is a big subject. Mm-hmm. It is a big subject, and there's also something, I suppose, about the way that things are raised and brought in. And one of the things we all had a little look at, I think, before this was a thesis from another course was at UCL or Royal Holloway by a trainee who had interviewed a number of service users about this and you know it wasn't an unmixed bag really but you know the sense that there were ways of going about self-disclosure in a more therapeutic context that were kind of helpful and ways that were a little bit less helpful and actually it touched back on what you said Anne about well in the end it ultimately be about trying to do your best to serve the person 
whom you're with or the people whom you're with rather than, you know, using it to enact some. So, I mean, I don't think that necessarily clinical trainings are somewhere where you're necessarily coming to work out your own stuff. I mean, you're coming to help, you're coming to try and help develop yourself as a as somebody who can assist other people. I always yeah. try not to say you think you've got problems. <laughs> it's really put that so much more pithily than I ever could uh, with this. so I think we'll have to um, wind up there so it only really remains for me to say uh, thank you to everyone um, for participating uh, the best way to follow the podcast is to subscribe you can do that on iTunes or SoundCloud or really wherever you get your podcast from by searching for discussions in Tunbridge Wells you can also find links to some of the things that we've talked about, some of the papers that we read in preparation for this uh, on the show page on our blog, Discursive of Tunbridge Wells, blogs at canterbury.ac.uk slash discursive. As well as that, you can follow the department on Twitter at CCCUAPPSY and on Facebook if you look for Canterbury Christchurch Applied Psychology. Thank you for listening to everyone. Uh, We're not sure when we'll be back, but hopefully soon. We have some interesting interviews coming up and some other topics that we wish to address in our new digs. So hopefully soon. Thank you. Thank you.